Welcome to the College Student Success Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping college students with mental health issues set and achieve goals for themselves to get them where they want to be. I'm your host, Derek Malenzak, and this is episode 53 of the podcast. And I got a good one for you folks. I am really excited to bring this episode to you. This is going to be a solo show today. Uh, no interview. I've done, I think, three interviews in the last three weeks, and I uh, really have enjoyed it. I feel like the uh, season is really gaining momentum. And um, I'm excited to bring you this episode today on my own, just me and you guys. And we are going to talk about resiliency and anti-fragility for college students today. And you may not really understand what that means, but I can assure you at the end of today, I will do my best to explain it. Um, This is an episode I've put a lot of work into, so I am really excited to bring it to you today. Uh, A couple of housekeeping issues real quick. First off, I hope you notice a slightly better quality to my voice, and that would be because I got a new microphone. Yay! (sighs) Yeah, pretty sweet. It is a Yeti blue microphone, Um, one of the... um, Highly recommended ones for podcasters, and um, my brother had actually been pushing me to get one, so this is for you, Matt. Uh, it's sleek and heavy, and I like it a lot. Um, it, it was so uh, sensitive compared to my old microphone that I had to change my, my recording setup because I was, on this, uh, I was putting the microphone on this wire shelving in my closet. As you guys know, I like to podcast in my closet for optimal sound. <laughs> And the microphone was picking up the sound vibrations of my voice rattling the um, microphone, which was rattling the wire um, shelving. So I had to switch to uh, a more sturdy surface. But I'm still in the closet, just uh, facing a different direction. So I hope you enjoy the uh, updated sound quality, and I hope it's better because I was uh, really annoyed at the sound quality recently. Um, Still annoyed at some of the Skype uh, issues I've been having with some of my interviews But um, recently, it seems to be going better for my other project. Um, But also with the crackling and popping with some of the episodes in recent weeks. So I assure you that I uh, did my best to resolve that. And hopefully moving forward, we have no more issues like that. This week is week eight of the semester at Rutgers. uh, So that means we're pretty much into the second half of the semester already. It's like, shit. (laughs) Where'd that first half go? Uh, hope that you guys are focused on the goals that we set in the beginning of this season or semester. Uh, I know I am. I had uh, a lot of work to do on my online class, and then it's tailed off in the last week or so. It's like, oh, I got a moment to breathe before it picks up again. Um, so uh, just before we get into the show, I also wanted to put another shout out that I am looking for college students who want to tell their stories. Come on and have me interview them about Um, how they managed through college or how they've managed so far and the successes that they've they've achieved and maybe even some of the barriers. But I really want to know about the strategies people use, um, what people's goals are, and and how they're getting to achieve them. Um, So if you are one of those people that feel like, you know, I could tell my story, and it actually actually is therapeutic to tell your story. any person in recovery um, from substance abuse uh, that's involved with the 12-step uh, philosophy would probably tell you that, and a lot of people in the mental health recovery field too. 
Um, so if you want to tell your story, uh, or if you're not sure if it's a good story and you just want to kind of, you know, check in with me and we could talk beforehand, that would be cool too. Reach out to me, collegestudentsuccesspodcast at gmail.com. So we have a quick topic of the day, kind of a, a letdown one, but we are going to uh, rise up from this one in a little while. Um, but I just wanted to put it out there because some people might be struggling with their low point or what they feel like is their low point in college. And I saw this uh, posted on the R College uh, subreddit on uh, reddit.com. What was your lowest point in college? And I just p- pulled it up because I mine stands out. So I wanted to, to talk about it and kind of what I did to uh, get through it. So my lowest point in college came in sophomore year, and it was the first time, I probably had told this story on the air at some other point, but um, I had been dating a girl in high school, and then I was a year older, so I went away to college freshman year, broke up with her. (laughs) We lived in different states, and when you get to college, I, I thought we could do it, but you know, when you're young, you don't, I don't know. So... Uh, we broke up. I, and then that summer I went back to Long Island and we got back together. And then she ended up going to Rutgers as well, wouldn't you know? So we went, both went back to Rutgers, uh, my sophomore year, her freshman year. And then she did the same thing to me. She broke up with me. Um, so I guess it was probably, um, justified, you know, in that, uh, I needed to kind of like work out this whole, like, oh, I'm going to college. Like, look at all these girls around. And not that I really like messed around. Um, I don't even think I really hooked up with anyone while we weren't dating, but it was just the, um, I guess I needed the freedom or whatever. And then she needed that freedom uh, in her freshman year. So looking back, I could totally understand it, but it hurt like hell, uh, when she, when she dumped me my sophomore year. And, um, I remember laying in my bed, really, really depressed and thinking, oh, this is what depression must feel like. And, uh, it fucking sucked. And uh, I still got to class and it didn't, it wasn't the kind of depression where I just kind of fell out of it and, you know, didn't attend classes and didn't, you know, I, I, I maintained, you know, I don't know how my, my grades probably suffered somewhat, but, uh, I was able to manage and I had a lot of friends that I had gotten close with freshman year that I really got close with sophomore year in their absence and started spending a lot of time with those guys. And, and that was my support and my, uh, my out to, you know, those feelings was getting involved with a new group of people that I really didn't know and getting to know them really well. And they became my like core group of friends for the next, you know, multiple years that I was in college and ended up living with all of them. And, um, yeah. So that was my low point. It, it made me question my um, belief in God and religion because I had been a pretty religious person up until then. I'd been going to church throughout high school, was, you know, confirmed and all that stuff. And I really sort of lost it there, you know, and was just like, no, I, I, if God were there, he would help me kind of thing. And and now I'm more of a, a deist in, in that I, I believe in God, but I don't necessarily subscribe to any one religion. Um, but uh, yeah, that was my low point, and uh, I managed through it, but it was a really, really fucking shitty semester. And, um, you know, I've had moments of, a, of depression. I've had, you know, situa- what I would call situational depression over the years, and I've had situational anxiety as well. Um, nothing diagnosed, and I haven't needed um, 
psychiatric medication, but uh, I've definitely had bouts of it. And uh, you needed to lean on my supports and and use the strategies that, uh, you know, I teach you guys and talk about every week here uh, for myself. So, um, you know, people's uh, responses in this thread, you know, ran the gambit. Um, you know, a lot of them were, were class related, you know, like, you know, the, the point, their academic low point. And I didn't really have, I don't really have a low point from that perspective. Uh, I guess more so in my, my master's degree, but I've told that story before of, of withdrawing from a class. But, uh, anyway, with that, let's get into today's topic. I'm really excited to bring it to you. It's about resiliency. I'm going to talk a little bit about resiliency first, and then I'm going to talk about anti-fragility. So I was talking with my mentor in preparing for this episode, and I was like, you know, we had been talking about different topics that would be good for college students, and and this one had come up just like when we hadn't even been talking about it. It was just like something like, oh, you know, we mentioned self-regulation and and resiliency for college students. I was like, those would be good topics for, um, for the podcast so I was thinking about resiliency, and then I read the book Anti-Fragility, or Anti-Fragile, um, and it was like, now I got to talk about this, but it's hard for me to talk about because uh, Nassim Taleb's, uh, the guy who wrote Anti-Fragile's concepts, to me are, are slightly complex, and it's hard to explain something that's complex to you. But the good thing for me is that when I'm done explaining it to you, I should actually have a better grasp of it. By teaching it to you or doing my best to. Uh, I'm sure he'll probably rip me apart for my description of it afterwards, but uh, eh, what the hell, I'll go for it anyway. So before we get to anti-fragility, I want to talk about resiliency because that to me is like sort of the where in the psych- psychology field, um, you, you know, this idea of bouncing back and, and it sort of predates uh, anti-fragility. So I feel like I need to talk about it first. And my mentor directed me to uh, Dr. Martin Seligman. And when she said his name, I was like, you know, I know that name. And she's like, oh, he did the, he developed learned helplessness. And I was like, okay, I remember that now. So that's where I thought I knew his name from. And I started reading some of the documentation uh, in the papers that are online. And I watched his TED Talk, his TED Talk link. uh, The link to it is in the show notes for today. I have a lot of links in today's show notes because I'm going to be reading just little snippets that help for me explain Taleb's work. And I think that I I don't think I could do it organically just like um, it with the with the preparation amount that I put into weekly episodes. I will say, though, I put more into this episode than I've put into an episode in a really long time. Um, trying to get it right. So I hope you guys appreciate it. So Dr. Seligman helped discover learned helplessness. Um, and that is sort of w- the uh, the findings where if somebody is just um, feels helpless, they stop seeking help and ways out of their situation and just kind of come to accept their unfortunate situation. And this has been proven, learned helplessness has been proven across multiple studies over years in um, different animals, including humans, but also rats and other species. Um, So he is also known as the father of positive psychology, as I started reading about him. And that was like, oh, now I know where I know this guy's name. It triggered a memory. And I was like, I interviewed Dr. Dan Tomasulo, back in episode 32, which is just feels like so fucking long ago. 
Um, one of my first interviews that like I was really nervous about that interview because it was somebody I didn't know personally. I just kind of like went up to him after a conference and asked him if I could interview him. And he said, sure. Um, so he talked about in his interview, which you can find um, back in episode 32, uh, he had completed the Master of Applied Positive Psychology or the MAP program, M-A-P-P at UPenn. And Dr. Seligman, I founded that program. And I was like, oh, look at that. Worlds colliding, right? And then and then I realized when I was doing some more looking into UPenn, it reminded me of another UPenn program that is closely affiliated with positive psychology, that being the Duckworth Lab. And that is the home of Angela Duckworth's research uh, laboratory on grit. And I also did a podcast on grit, and I sort of used snippets of an interview with uh, Angela Duckworth. It was before her book came out, uh, and that was episode 36. And I think I kind of got a tip from Dr. Thomas Sulo to kind of look into her, and then I, I found her again later. And these sorts of things are really sort of important to me. Like, I'm just going to do a sidebar here. Um, when I have trends that overlap and themes that kind of come up repeatedly, in, especially in different walks of life or consistently over a, a short period of time, like, and I consider a year in this case, a short period of time, it really like makes me, it makes my intuition go like, hmm, there's something there. I need to be curious about this. I need to look into this more. And I'm really glad I did. I'm really glad I, I decided to look into resiliency and figure out like the connection between Dr. Seligman the episode I did on positive psychology, the episode I did on grit, and anti-fragility. Um, they, all these themes sort of overlap to me, and I'm going to do my best to explain them to you today. I really hope that, uh, that you get something out of it. So what the fuck is um, resiliency? I've been, I've been talking for a while. Um, so I'm going to use an example, and this is an article written by Dr. Seligman himself called Building Resilience, and it's in the Harvard Business Review. And uh, there is a link to it, of course, in today's show notes. Okay, so he begins the article with this story. Douglas and Walter, two University of Pennsylvania MBA graduates, were laid off by their Wall Street companies 18 months ago. Both went into a tailspin. They were sad, listless, indecisive, and anxious about the future. For Douglas, the mood was transient. After two weeks, he told himself, it's not you, it's the economy going through a bad patch. I'm good at what I do, and there will be a market for my skills. He updated his resume and sent it to a dozen New York firms, all of which rejected him. He then tried six companies in his Ohio hometown and eventually landed a position. Walter, by contrast, spiraled into hopelessness. I got fired because I can't perform under pressure, he thought. I'm not cut out for finance. The economy will take years to recover. Even as the market improved, he did not look for another job and ended up moving back in with his parents. Douglas and Walter, who are composites based on interviewees, stand at the opposite ends of the continuum of reactions to failure. The Douglases of the world bounce back after a brief period of malaise. Within a year, they've grown because of the experience. The Walters go from sadness to depression to a paralyzing fear of the future, yet failure is nearly inevitable part of work, and of life, I would say. Uh, and along with dashed romance, it is one of life's most common traumas. People like Walter are almost certain to find their careers stymied, and companies full of such employees are doomed in hard times. It is people like Douglas who rise to the top, and whom organizations must recruit and retain in order to succeed. 
But how can you tell who's a Walter and who's a Douglas? And can Walters become Douglases? Can resilience be measured and taught? And I'm going to go into it in a little bit, but the answer is yes. Okay, so that example, that story is a good example, I think, of um, somebody that's resilient, right? They suffer a setback, and it could be any kind of setback. This was a job loss, but it could be a psychiatric relapse. Um, it could be, you know, substance abuse related. It could be a failure in school. It could be anything like that. How you bounce back is that resiliency, and, and Angela Duckworth terms it grit, and it's sort of slightly different, but... um. This resiliency, I think, is just really important because I don't think that it's really taught, and it can be taught, and that's what uh, Dr. Seligman goes on to talk about in the article. Um, He developed a resiliency training for the U.S. Army that is in use, and it's got a bunch of different components to it and modules, Um, but I think that the aspect I pulled out of it is to the master resiliency training aspect where he talks about three main ways to build uh, resiliency. It's through mental toughness, and the way you would build mental toughness is through really using cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, CBT, and what that is is really identifying consciously patterns in your thinking. So if you have a thought that relates to hopelessness, for example, it's like, oh, I can't do this, you know, I'm so down on myself. CBT teaches you to kind of identify, stop and identify that thought when it happens to be like, oh, I just had a negative thought or, you know, this bad thing. And then teaches you ways to kind of change you the way you think. Um, And then use strategies for when you have bad thoughts to kind of of self-correct them. And a lot of it is based on mindfulness, this idea that you have to be aware of your thoughts and be like living in the moment to figure out like your your feelings and your your emotions and when you're doing cbt actively change them and that is uh, a way to sort of build mental toughness and change somebody from this like you know fear of fear of failure mindset to this like no i can do this i can get through it a lot of it is recognizing these self-defeating thoughts and changing them uh, the second aspect he talks about is building on signature strengths And I love this because this really blends with the psychiatric rehabilitation approach that we teach in my my program, Uh, a strengths-based focus that uh, really tailored to the person and what they like to do and what they enjoy and what they're good at. And Seligman talks about like the things that we're good at, we like, things that we like to do, I'm sorry, things that we're good at, we end up usually enjoying doing. Um, And so if people can really tune into what they're good at and know that everybody has fucking strengths. I'm sorry. Don't believe it if you don't. Um, You can use those and leverage them to sort of um, get ahead, you know, and kind of overcome things uh, that will kind of set you back from time to time. And then the last thing is building strong relationships. And that, you know, I think for a lot of people, you think or hear that and you're like, oh, shit, you know, easier said than done, right? I've been trying that for years. And the way Seligman teaches it um, through this army um, training is communication techniques. And that is uh, a thing that we teach a lot in my program is like how to respond to what people say, Um, you know, how to effectively summarize because summarizing is good to when you communicate with others because it shows them that you understand, right? 
and they're more prone to keep talking and they also feel like a bond there because they're like, oh, they took the time, right? They actually get what I'm talking about. And, you know, the reason I know that is because they communicated it to me. And it might be other things like sort of really being attuned to people's feelings and, um, you know, getting to really know the person uh, instead of focusing on um, what your response is going to be, you know, to kind of focus on what people are actually saying and and to truly actively listen. Um, So that to me like made a lot of sense, especially as I just finished um, the book Anti-Fragile. And I've talked about this over the last few weeks, probably the last month, because it's taken me uh, a while to get through the audiobook. Um, it was like the longest audiobook I ever read. So I, I kind of have a routine of when I listen to audiobooks. Um, and in just like over time, you know, eventually I got through it. And there were times where it really challenged me and I was almost like, ah, do I want to keep going in the middle? But I'm glad I pushed through. Um, this is one of the more challenging books I've ever tried to tackle. Um, some of the concepts were kind of over my head at times, but it's good to listen to things that are slightly over your head because when the more you, you do grasp a lot, and then if you the way you try and yearn to grasp on to more, I think is I don't know in some ways a better learning technique than listening to content that is like a little one step below you. You know, kind of listening to something that's one step ahead of you in terms of like. Uh, the level of the person's talking at can, I think, be a benefit in terms of, yeah, you don't get everything, but you you do get more, I think, out of that than if you're you're not challenged. I think it kind of builds in with what the concept of anti-fragility is. So what the fuck is it, Derek? Um, so Talib has, a, Talib has a website, uh, fooledbyrandomness.com, where you can go and, and get all kinds of his thoughts and works and papers. Um, and here is a definition from another Harvard Business Review article uh, that he actually thought was a pretty good uh, interpretation of his work. And they define anti-fragile as this. It's an admittedly awkward word, but but that's because it's easiest to understand first what it does not describe. It refers of something that is unbreakable, yes, but not because it's impervious to assault. Something that is anti-fragile, Taleb explains, actually grows and flourishes because it is stressed and then allowed to order itself in response. Anti-fragility allows an entity not merely to withstand all the black swans coming its way, but to absorb their forceful volatility and emerge stronger. Fragile things have their real opposite, not in durable things, Taleb says, but in things that gain from disorder. All right, so that's a mouthful. It talks about black swans, and black swans are like basically extreme events that you can't predict. And that's uh, the basis of a lot of his philosophy. He wrote the book, The Black Swan, before the book Anti-Fragile. So Anti-Fragile is kind of billed as like the handbook to deal with volatility and to deal with black swans. And so think about, uh, I'm going to give some examples of what anti-fragility is. So first think of something that's fragile, right? You take a fine piece of china and you throw it on the ground and it breaks, right? It's fragile. it cannot put itself back together when it's broken. So unless you used a bunch of glue and, you know, that's really not putting it back together, right? That's piecing it. So it's not durable. Um, and it certainly doesn't get stronger when you when you stress something like fine china, right? 
But think about now, so also fine china is not resilient either. Uh, but think about like a bone in your body, right? If you break a bone, you break your arm playing, I don't know. I broke my ankle once playing soccer. <laughs> so, and I walked around for it on a, for a week because my parents didn't think it was broken. <laughs> uh, just had to throw that in there, but I forgive them, you know. Um, so I broke my ankle and it was, you know, under stress, right? It was, ex it experienced trauma. And when you break a bone, you know, you cast it and it, the body repairs itself, right? It's a miracle, right? It's beautiful. Um, and not only does the bone heal just as well as it was before it broke, but in fact heals stronger. And you could find evidence on this. Um, it's pretty well documented. And you can find also, so that's anti-fragility. You know, you stress something, you know, like a bone, it breaks, but then it, when it repairs itself, it actually becomes stronger in response. Um, evolution is sort of like, in my mind, in my mind, the perfect description of anti-fragility in that over time, through trial and error, we figure out or nature figures out what works in a species and what doesn't, right? It worked for humans to go from being four legged uh, or, you know, walk on four feet to walking on two feet. And the way that that happened slowly over time is, you know, there was a an anomaly of sorts. Um, in the, initially, it was a, an anomaly in the species where s just a couple of people, you know, early humans stood on two feet. And but they benefited from that for some reason, whatever it was, you know, they could reach more food, for example, than one that just walked on four legs. So that trait in in humans ended up being sort of a favorite trait and rewarded. And so those people survived more. And eventually over time, we completely evolved into a species where all the four legged humans died out over time. You know, that's a rough way of describing evolution. But basically, um, you know, there was this this abnormality, right? Sort of a stress initially, but they emerged and became anti-fragile in that they benefited from that anomaly or that volatility. Um, if you've heard of the, the Hydra, which is like, I think a myth, mythical beast and like, it would be, it was said that if you cut the, slice the head off of a Hydra, it was this multi-headed beast, that if you slice the head off of it with a sword, that it would grow back two heads, right? That's an anti-fragile being, right? When it's stressed, it actually emerges even stronger. Uh, so in psychology, there is an aspect, you think of post-traumatic stress disorder, and that is something that Seligman talks about and was one of the main drivers for why he got involved with the army because there's such a high prevalence of PTSD. Um, so did you know, and I think I may have discussed it once before, just briefly, but there's actually something called post-traumatic growth. Uh, and I'm going to talk about this and kind of end the podcast on that. But that's sort of, to me, anti-fragility in mental health. Um, but let's get back to Talib for a second. So I want to talk about some of his main points in, an, in the book Anti-Fragility and how they relate to being resilient uh, and how you can kind of be resilient and anti-fragile uh, as a college student. One thing he talks a lot about is asymmetry. Uh, so asymmetry meaning, if you think of something that has symmetry, right, it's even on both sides, right? So asymmetry is, it's uneven, right? And if you can look for things that are asymmetrical to the upside, right? So when something has more upside than downside, 
that is an example of something being asymmetrical in your favor that you want to look for. Those uh, usually bring about anti-fragility. Um, so an example of this in, in my wife's life recently, I'm going to use her as an example. Um, she, had, uh, she had stopped working for a period of time and um, wasn't really sure what she wanted to do, kind of not really sure if she wanted to go back into the industry she was working in. And then a friend of hers called her up and was like, hey, you know, I have a, a temporary position open in my hotel. She works in the hospitality industry and I could really use your help, you know, for uh, a month or something like that. And so she asked me, like, what do you think? And I was like, well, I remember it stood out to me because I was reading the book at the time. I'm like, there seems to be a lot more upside in, in, in deciding to do that than downside, right? If you decide to do it and you hate it, the downside is you hate it, right? And you just leave, right? You tell your friend, eh, this wasn't really what I was looking for. They would understand it was only temporary anyway. But the asymmetric upside is you do like it. Maybe it turns into a permanent position. Um, or maybe it turns into another position down the road. You get to network with a bunch of people. You sort of kind of build yourself, you know, back up in that, you know, being out of work kind of sucks. And uh, if you're not really sure if you like the field, this is yet another opportunity to kind of see for yourself. There was a lot more upside in in that than there was downside. And she ended up doing it, choosing to uh, to help her out. And I think that it turned out in that way. You know, she didn't hate it. She didn't leave after three days. She's actually still there. Uh, one month turned into like two months. So um, that's an example of asymmetric and asymmetrical, um, you know, kind of things to look for in your life where if you can kind of like lean to where there's more upside than downside, you know, there's always going to be times where the downside hits. But if you can just kind of come out, you know, slightly over the edge of, you know, more than 50 percent, you're going to, you know, you're going to come out ahead over time because you think about it. This is, uh, you know, something to be practiced long term. Um, you're going to have lots of little stresses and it's, you know, you can manage, you can build yourself up to get stronger from the little stresses. And also, you know, anti-fragility would say kind of shield yourself from the major stresses. You know, those are the the, the life-changing, hor- horrifying events or, you know, what you're trying to kind of protect and insulate yourself from. And it talks about optionality as well. So I'm going to read a quote here. Uh, from This is from the website gettingstronger.org. It talks about uh, reviewed Taleb's work. And this is on asymmetric optionality. Uh, accepting the idea that we should use the majority of our assets to protect solitary, uh, solidly against the downside. How do we decide to invest our money, our time, or our energy to maximize the upside? Taleb's answer is to commit to create asymmetric options. An option is not just any investment. It's something you can choose to act on, but have no obligation to act upon. Taleb's idea is to seek out or create options that have strong upside, but very low cost or downside. He cites the example of the Greek philosopher Thales, sorry if I butcher that, who brought, you the, who brought the rights to use uh, idle olive oil presses for a very low fee. When an unusually good olive harvest came, he reaped a fortune by renting out the oil presses to growers who had to come to him. Look for asymmetric options in areas besides just investing. For example, if you could secure a rent-controlled apartment, you are protected against rent increases. But if rental rates go down elsewhere, you are free to move. In your contracts, insist on the option to cancel at will without cost. Here's another example. Don't sign up for long-term phone contracts. Um, So 
this is like my wife, right? She had the option to enter into this employment contract. Essentially, that's what employment is, right? A contract to work. And she had the option to leave. You know, anyone really does. But in it, because it was a short-term position, it was even imp- increased. And there was a lot of upside and very limited downside. So that's like the best example. And he gives some good ones in there as well uh, as to ways to kind of look for asymmetric optionality. Skin in the game is another thing that Talib talks about. Um, he's got a real disdain for um, for academics, actually, like myself. Um, although I wouldn't really identify myself in that role quite yet. I consider myself a teacher, first and foremost. Um, so skin in the game refers to basically, you know, I think people can kind of understand it. Like when you have a stake in the success of something, you're going to think about it differently. You're going to act upon it differently. You're going to consider it differently. So this is from the dailybeast.com, uh, another article on, uh, on Taleb's work on skin in the game. One can, for instance, rely more on trial and error processes and less on assessments of experts when it comes to acquiring knowledge. Those calling the shots at the highest level of an organization or offering consequential options, Talib advises, should have skin in the game and be held accountable if they get it wrong. We should also cultivate a greater reverence for failed entrepreneurs as the personal risks they assume leave the entire economic system better off. So I'm a big believer in this as well. Um, when I, I've been talking about you know, my interest in investing in the stock market recently, and when I finally took the plunge to open a, um, an account, uh, like a, um, an account at a place like E-Trade and start buying and selling stocks and stuff, it, it's nothing that can prepare you, nothing can prepare you, like even those like fake investing games where you just like invest its stocks uh, like as a game and it's, you know, not real money. You don't have any skin in the game in those and it, you just treat it completely different. Like you just be more risky. You don't actually put much research into what you do. When you have your own money on the line, you have skin in the game and you will take it completely, uh, you'll take it serious to a completely different level. You will put the time in to make a, a less risky decision. And if you think about that as a way that um, an organization it's the way it should work, right? The the top people, the top line administrators should have an stake in the success. They should have skin in the game. Um, so, and then I really like what they say too about failed entrepreneurs. He's got a great reverence for entrepreneurs because of his um, support for the trial and error process. And every time a, most businesses fail, you know, and mo- every time uh, an entrepreneur takes that risk, the economy learns just a little bit about what doesn't work or what does work. Um, so I am a real big believer in skin in the game for both of those reasons. Uh, Talib also talks a lot about hur- heuristics throughout the book. Um, and a heuristic is sort of a, a simple way to think about something. Um, so according to Talib, a good way to achieve both aims is to adapt a heuristic approach to decision-making. You know, if you have a decision and you're like, ah, there's good reasons for, for one and good reasons for the other. Uh, if we know that it's impossible to predict the character and size of future events, it's safer to use fuzzy predictive systems that are known to be useful most of the time and perhaps more importantly, are not prone to occasionally produce catastrophically wrong predictions. 
Hence, the role for our heuristic rules. They don't try to be perfectly accurate, but simplify or guide our decisions in the right decision, minimizing the chances to get it spectacularly wrong. At the same time, it is possible to adopt rules that are destined to sacrifice a little predictive precision in favor of desired asymmetric or asymmetry of outcomes. When they'll choose the wrong option, the downfall will be minimized. When we get it right, the advantage will be comparatively bigger. Uh, in this way, one maximizes anti-fragility. Finding out the rules of thumb that prevent catastrophic errors and at the same time maximize the chance to score spectacular wins. It's possible even in an unpredictable world. It's desirable because it transforms unpredictability into an advantage. So that may have been a little challenging for people to understand, but if you think about a heuristic as basically a rule of thumb, right? And if you apply these rules of thumb, these rules of thumb are rules of thumb because they've been proven over time, right? Um, so example might be looking both ways before you cross the street, right? That's what, that's That would be a heuristic, you know? Generally speaking, almost every time you cross the street, you do that, right? There might be times where it is um, completely desolate, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere, you could see all around you there's no blockages and you might not actually follow that heuristic but like why do you do that right uh, it's to basically guide your decision making as to when to cross the street and to make sure that you don't get it spectacularly wrong right try a uh, truck fucking mow you down <laughs> uh, that's what we're trying to prevent so the simple heuristic of looking both ways prevents that cat catastrophe from happening and he's a big fan of heuristics as well. Heuristics are great because, again, they've been proven over time many, 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 many years. Um, so he is a, a fan, Taleb's a fan of things that are kind of strong, that have held firm over time. They have proven to be, in a sense, anti-fragile. Uh, and then the last aspect of Taleb's I'm going to talk about is the barbell strategy, which is kind of like my favorite. Um, this is going back to the gettingstronger.org uh, website that talks about barbells. One of the hallmarks of fragility is that the downside is much more worse than the upside. I'm going to stop for a second. You think back to like fine china, right? Fine china is fragile. The downside is going to be that it breaks, right? And then you have nothing. It's completely worthless. The upside is that it will be continue to not break, <laughs> you know, uh, limited upside. Going back to the article, Taleb realized that as an options trader, that's what he used to do before he became a philosopher, uh, he developed a bimodal investment strategy using the image of a barbell as a metaphor for pursuing the extremes instead of the average. Rather than diversify into areas of average risk, he advises putting the majority of assets into ultra-safe investments, like cash, and a small amount, say 10%, into some investments that are riskier but have disproportionately huge upside. This is an asymmetric or lopsided strategy which protects the downside and has the possibility of great gain on the upside. The barbell strategy is not limited to investment but can apply to psychology and health. Another way Taleb suggests to apply this strategy is to choose a safe career and supplement that with a wild, creative, or fun avocation like writing, skydiving, or playing in a rock mine. How does the barbell strategy apply to health? 
A great example is combining occasional high-intensity weightlifting or interval training, alternating with long stretches of rest, recovery, and doing nothing. The intermittent stress of lifting an extreme weight pushes the body to overcompensate and prepare for an even greater future challenge, but the interlude of rest and recovery is restorative and avoids the downside of chronic overuse. We can extend this idea of bimodal barbell strategy to practices such as intermittent fasting or taking cold showers. The barbell strategy is the exact opposite of conventional wisdom to engage in moderate aerobic exercise on the treadmill every day or to eat regular small meals throughout the day. Periodic intense stressors build anti-fragile resilience, but chronic stress without rest and recovery just wears us down. By alternating between extremes of intensity and rest, feast and fast, luxury and poverty, we become more resilient because we increase our range of responsiveness to environmental variability. That is really that that was the uh, the part of the book that rang true for me the most, this barbell strategy and living in extremes rather than in the middle. And it made me realize that my job really is is anti-fragile in that respect in that I really work hard for those 15 weeks during our semesters, right? We're in the fall semester now, and I work my ass off. I, you know, it's teaching three classes and taking a class and doing the podcasts and everything else. You know, I don't want to say I work hard because I know everybody works hard. But, like, for me, it's a good um, lifestyle, you know, the way that my my career is – my job is set up in that after those 15 weeks, I get a break where – I don't do nothing. <laughs> that would be nice. But like I can take my vacation time and um, the time that I am at work, I'm sort of preparing for class and it's a lot less stressful. And in the summertime, it's only one class and it's like a long period. It feels like, I, you know, it feels like uh, time off, even though I'm still working because it's not the fall or the spring semester. Um, my wife is now in a, in a position where she'll work like in these temporary positions for like a month straight, work her ass off. And then maybe take a month off and not do anything. And then before she gets called on another assignment, she just can spend time with her, her family and relax and de-stress. And the more I think about it, the more that I think this barbell strategy can be applied in other ways too. Like they said, with, with eating. You know, it, can, it defies conventional wisdom and, and probably um, a lot of people are just like a little bit in disbelief because they've heard the, you know, oh, you should eat small meals throughout the day strategy for, you know, being healthy forever. So I urge you, though, to look into it um, and see for yourself. So to close, um, I want to close again, going back to post-traumatic growth. To me, the best example of anti-fragility in mental health and, and sort of proof that it exists. Um, so I'm going to read real quick uh, what is post-traumatic growth. It's a positive change experienced as a result of the struggle with a major life crisis or traumatic event. Although we coined the term post-traumatic growth, the idea that human beings can be changed by their encounters with life challenges, sometimes in radically positive ways, is not new. The theme is present in ancient spiritual and religious traditions, literature, and philosophy. What is reasonably new is the systematic study of the phenomenon by psychologists, social workers, counselors, and scholars in other traditions of clinical practice and scientific investigation. So post-traumatic growth tends to occur in five general areas. Sometimes people who must face a major life crisis develops a sense of new opportunities that have emerged from the struggle, opening up possibilities that were not present before. 
A second area is change in relationships with others. Some people experience close relationships with some specific people, and they could also experience an increased sense of connection to others who suffer. A third area of possible change is increased sense of one's own strengths. If I live through that, I can face anything type of thinking. A fourth aspect of post-traumatic growth by uh, some people is greater appreciation for life in general. And the fifth area involves spiritual or religious domain. Some individuals experience a deepening of their spiritual lives. However, this deepening can involve a significant change in one's belief system. And I do want to read these clarifications because I think it's important. Um, Just because individuals experience growth does not mean they will not also suffer. So um, we must, we're definitely not implying that traumatic events are good. Post-traumatic growth is not universal. And our hope is that you never face a major life crisis. So I think those caveats are good to just stick on there at the end. It's like, no, trauma isn't, isn't good. We shouldn't like seek it out. But if we do have to experience it, and everybody does to some degree, um, there are ways to sort of grow from it. And, and there are, people have grown from it. Dr. Seligman's, um, Dr. Seligman's module on the, that is being done for the Army now also do, uh, talks about it. Um, it was this aspect of the program was created by Richard Tedeschi from North Carolina uh, and Harvard psychologist Richard McNally. Um, it begins with the ancient wisdom that personal transformation comes from a renewed appreciation of being alive, enhanced personal strength, acting on new possibilities, improved relationships, or spiritual deepening. Um, so the module that is taught to the soldiers um, teaches these elements. So understanding the response to trauma or failure, which includes a shattered belief about the self or others. Remember what I talked about when uh, my, my girlfriend broke up with me and it made me question my belief system with uh, the, my religion? It sort of comes back to that. This is a normal response, not a symptom of PTSD or character defect. And then they work to reduce anxiety through techniques for controlling intrusive thoughts or images. I think that's really, you know, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, and action. They talk about engaging in constructive self-disclosure. Bottling up trauma leads to the worsening of physical or psychological symptoms. So soldiers or just people in general that are experiencing trauma are encouraged to tell their stories. Creating a narrative, this is number four, creating a narrative in which trauma is seen as a fork in the road that enhances the appreciation of paradox, loss and gain, grief and gratitude, vulnerability and strength. A manager might compare this to what the leadership studies pioneer Warren Bennis called crucibles of leadership. The narrative specifies what personal strengths were called upon, how some relationships improved, how spiritual life strengthened, and how life itself was better appreciated or what new doors opened. And then finally, articulating life principles. These encompass new ways to be altruistic, crafting a new identity, and taking seriously the idea of the Greek hero who returns from Hades to tell the world an important truth about how to live. So that is, um, that's kind of what I had for today related to resiliency, anti-fragility, sort of how to be more resilient and how to lead a more Uh, anti-fragile life. Um, I hope you got some value out of today's episode as much as I got out of preparing for it because um, this is something that I'm very, very interested in. 
and I don't think really gets a lot of attention in popular mainstream psychology, social work, etc. Um, but it's, it's there. And uh, I think that uh, if you're interested in this, you know, read into these authors. You don't have to maybe spend the 16 hours I did reading Antifragile, but you could read some of the links in today's show notes. Uh, everyone I quoted is in there uh, that are basically people that write about him, you know, Taleb, or if you want to, you know, watch the Seligman TED Talk um, for more information on resiliency, positive psychology, uh, and anti-fragility. So your homework for this week is to figure out one way to build resiliency or anti-fragility in your life. Um, so my example is, um, I don't actually, this doesn't relate to my goal, but it's something I've been thinking about related to my wife's position now and kind of working for her a month or a period of time and then being off is it change, It makes me have to change my routine, right? So when she's working every day, I can work from home and I kind of have the whole house and it's quiet and I can concentrate and focus and it's good. When she's home, not working, I now change up my schedule to kind of basically do all of what I do at home at, at my office because I just need that, I need to be, I need to kind of separate it for those hours. Um, in, in the beginning, it was really hard to transition and I the flexibility, it really stressed me out. But I know when I go, when she finishes up and I go back to this schedule, basically starting next week, I'm going to be able to handle it a lot better because I've already dealt with it. I've tinkered, practiced trial and error. Um, and I think that it makes us more anti-fragile in the long run to be able to adapt to a bunch of different situations, whether it be me working from home or working from the office, her being home, her being responsible for our son or me being responsible. It makes us improve our communication with one another uh, and just leads, I think, to a more um, we have more options down the road. Right. For if she wants to go back or stay home or vice versa or for me, if I want to work from home or not. So also, is there any way that the goal you're working on will make you more resilient or anti-fragile? You know, I think for most people, they think that, you know, being in school will give them options definitely down the road. Um, But what are you taking out of school or what are you taking out of what you're learning by working on your goal right now that's going to kind of make your life more anti-fragile in the future? So hope you got a lot of value at today's episode. As I said, uh, college students that want to be interviewed on their goal success and the strategies they use, please reach out to me. Uh, Keep on work on killing it this semester, guys. I will be back at you next week with another interview. Awesome job this week. Keep going. You can do it. I know a lot of midterms came up. Uh, Hopefully you find them successful and uh, you're working on those goals. Keep at it, guys. Peace.